Copycat, let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for July 20th, 2017. The eventually we will get something done edition and David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. To my right in the DC studio, John Dickerson of CBS's Face the Nation. Hello, John. Hello, David. And to John's right, also in the DC studio, the New York Times Magazine's Emily Bazelon. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. We are all together once more, so delightfully. Just if you were worried, we're all friends after last week's fracas. We had a nice dinner, kiss and made up at the Dickerson household. You didn't even have to make up. I'm just trying to create some false drama. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we hugged it It was out. a great dinner. It was a delicious dinner. Uh, pointing out it is July 20th, which means it's, we're exactly six months into Donald Trump's first term as president, which means we're as little as one sixteenth of the way through the Trump presidency, if that's not depressing enough. But so it goes. On this week's GabFest, the Senate health care bill collapses with no reasonable alternative looming on the horizon. Is Obamacare finally engraved, acid etched in stone, or is there some other effort to come that could overturn it? Then Josh Green drops by to talk about his new bestseller, Devil's Bargain, his bestseller about Steve Bannon and Trump, and also to talk about the president's remarkable, to use a, a non-pejorative adjective, six-month interview with the New York Times. Then the Secretary of Education and her uh, allies have a new campaign about college sexual assault, a new effort to increase, no, to stop, just to do something to college sexual assault. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. On Monday night, without notice, senders Mike Lee and Jerry Moran, Jerry, 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 simultaneously announced their opposition to the BCRA, the Senate Republican Health Care Bill, bringing to fore the number of definite opponents of that bill and dooming it to defeat. It was hard for anyone, even I think Republicans, to mourn that bill's passing. It was uh, it was vicious, deadly, not even loved by its own parents. It was like the typhoid Mary or Charles Manson of health care reform bills. But it rises again. Well, we'll see. Its defeat seems... I guess when I sort of put this in my notes, I thought the defeat seemed complete, but who knows? Never, Nothing ever seems complete. On Wednesday, the president insisted that something will get passed. Mitch McConnell briefly floated the idea of trying to pass a repeal and delay bill, which that seems doomed. 
And now we're at this idea of just putting motion to proceed on the floor and then opening wide to amendments. And let's just like just recreate the entire healthcare system on the fly. On the right. Floor. Well, people, we should remind people what that means. So there are those who are opposed to even, quote unquote, getting on the bill, which is to say even going and talking about it. Those who would block debate before. So that's what the motion to proceed is. And so there is. There are people blocking even that, which is to say you can't even get it get the debate started. The reason somebody like Rand Paul wants to block the motion to proceed is he says what happens is that you get on the floor and this thing takes on a momentum of its own and leaders say, oh, no, this will be taken care of by this amendment. Nobody can read the amendment. People don't want to vote against the amendment because it's called the like bunnies and apple pies for orphans who uh, visit the – infirm and everybody votes for it and then later you learn after it's passed that it's got all this horrible stuff in it so that's why he doesn't even want to have the debate there are other reasons to not even want to have the debate including that you would uh not vote for a bill that you might previously have voted for when it was a free vote during the obama administration but what's the bill so so just to back up so the net the new plan seems to be we're going to put a bill on the floor and it's going to be wild west we're going to have legislation we're going to have amending we're going to have senators being senatorial on the floor of the senate uh, and then we'll we'll produce a bill. But what is the bill that would be put on the floor? Well, there, there are a couple of different bills, I think, that will be put on the floor. One will be the House version. One will be the 2015 repeal only. So you basically have three ideas, repeal and replace, straight up repeal, and then like uh, free for all. Let's call it free for all. So what would the actual underlying bill be? I suppose it would be the House bill. It might be the repeal bill, though. It might actually. Not the it, Senate bill, not BICRA. Uh I don't know what the underlying bill would be, although it wouldn't necessarily m- matter. Matter unless um, it did. Well, well I guess it would matter to the way you inst- you constructed the amendments because wait, you'd have to know what you were they, amending. Are they insane? Is this? I, I mean, this just seems like just a recipe for nothing happening, and them spending several weeks making nothing happen and creating um, chaos and anger, uh, and then not passing a bill or passing a bill that will be just even dreadfuler than they could imagine. Are they re- do they really think this is a does McConnell really think this is a process that can work? Well, we should step back. It is a totally screwed up process that is against the way the institution is supposed to work. So, that's just the starting point. One of the reasons we're fumbling around what's going to actually get to the floor is as of Wednesday night, they met for three hours and talked about a new piece of legislation. So it might be a new animal that reaches the floor next week. But uh, they got the two pressures. One is that what they've created so far is deeply unpopular. There was an NBC poll of the counties in which Donald Trump won. And in those counties, which is to say red, deep Trump land, there's only 12 percent support for the Senate bill. So. It is the one P and we should talk about this. It's the one thing that has cracked his um, otherwise tight hold on his on his voters. So there's that on the one side and the other to his being Donald Trump's. Mm -hmm. And the other side is um, the fact that they've for seven years promised they're going to repeal this and people will be furious. People in the grassroots and more important people like the Koch funding network will be furious if they don't get this done because they're they control all the the necessary branches. Yes. Okay. But have they not learned, Emily, from this six months of experience that actually they don't have any ideas that are better than what's out there? They don't have any agreement to produce something that's better than what's out there. And and the bills they're likely to pass would be hideously, grotesquely unpopular and probably also bad for their own constituents. Much as it may be dreadful to them and much as it may have political consequence for their funding, they shouldn't pass a bill. 
Right. Well, so this is that's like the rock, and then there's the hard place, which is just what John was just describing, and they don't have a great choice, right? I mean, you can understand the frustration in the donor class and on the activist um, side if they don't do anything. Now, I do think the activists until now have been pretty damn quiet. There hasn't been a whole lot of like righteous repeal Obamacare protesting going on at all. But now those groups are starting to at least rail against the dissenting senators in the press. So there's that. And then I guess there's the wild card of Donald Trump, he's been disengaged. He's been inconsistent. If I was a Republican senator, I would just be privately fuming about his conduct. And yet he didn't take no for an answer this week and said, well, we got to do something here. And so I guess one thing I've been trying to think about is, does McConnell just hope that if they create enough of a pressure cooker and they kind of bang some heads together, something's going to come out of this? That did work in the House, after all. It doesn't seem totally crazy. Or is does he figure, well, plan B is that you're sort of putting on a show for President Trump, for the aggravated donors and activists, and that he has to actually make people take a vote of some kind in order to really, like, satisfy that hunger, I guess. But it seems so costly, too. Anyway. Speaking of, of hunger, it does feel at times like the negotiations here are how you are, are like, you know, everybody get together and let's figure out how we can serve a meat dinner to vegans. I mean, there's it's the process is like a lot of frustration around a thing that's just not because what they're talking about is adding more money to the states to help with the Medicaid changes that are in whatever the bill will be that will be put forward. They're, they're drastic cuts. They're drastic uh, reductions in the rate of growth of spending, which will essentially have the effect of cutting people from the program. So they would add more money. And so but the money that's been proposed so far, I think, is about two hundred billion dollars, which ends up being six billion per state over probably like a 10 year period, which isn't enough. So they're trying to buy off that group. But once you do that, you're going to you're I don't think that's going to get you Lee and Paul. So there you've got two and that's it. I mean, and probably won't get you Collins. So all the original divisions are still there. And if they solve it by spending money, you, you, I, I really feel like you'll probably lose some people. The role of the president, just one quick thing, is that he had two key skills he brought to the job by his own description. One was his ability to negotiate and the other two is his, his ability as a marketer. You can quibble with his whether he's a negotiator. Obviously, a lot of it was pretend negotiation on The Apprentice, and part of this is his self-created image of himself. But when you talk to the people who were involved in New York real estate with him, he does have some skills in negotiating that he used through, throughout his career, which let's we can leave aside the bankruptcies and all that. Anyway, so as a negotiator, he's been almost without much of a role in all of this. And as a marketer, this thing is incredibly unpopular. So for his two key skills that he said he brought to the job, neither one of them has been in evidence. Well, he's never made a good marketing pitch that's based on policy. He's made one based on lying, but not based on what's actually in the bill. So John McCain sadly said this week that he has brain cancer. He's not in Washington because he's recovering from surgery, which means that the Republicans he missing his vote if you count Collins and Paul, they don't have anywhere to go. Does that seem significant? Here? Yeah, it means they don't. They can't do it. Um, now, presumably, Senator McCain could come and do what Pete Wilson did when he had emergency surgery and was a senator and was um, brought to the floor just simply just to cast a single vote. 
The thing is, John McCain has stated that he thinks the bill should be put together in the way bills are supposed to be put together, which is you bring both parties in. And we should note, we should go back and just state for the record that the White House, when this died earlier in the week, I guess it was Tuesday, the president's spokesperson said, you know, this is all because the Democrats wouldn't participate. I asked Senator Manchin who would be the Democrat you would speak to first if you were trying to make a deal with or even get the input of Democrats if he'd been contacted by either the White House or Mitch McConnell about health care. And he said no. That's so amazing. that's that's, that's like amazing. guy number one on your list you would contact if you were trying to put together any kind of deal or find if there was any. Wow. Uh, so it, you, we just have to be awake to that. So if you if you really tried to bring Democrats in, uh, even if you gave them nothing in the end, you would lose. You know, you'd lose a pretty big chunk of um, of of Republicans. So so the idea that you could do it in a bipartisan fashion, if you tried, is not like it would be super easy. I want to go back to the sort of the consequence of not doing anything. I. I strongly believe that there is much less consequence of not doing anything for Republicans than, than they fear. I really just don't see it. The consequences of doing a bad bill and creating misery are obvious to me. They're huge. You genuinely hurt your constituents. You take away something that's popular from them and that they, lo- they want. I understand why you would not pass a bill. The consequences of not passing a bill seem to me, okay, so the Koch network starts to fund other Republican candidates. That's a stress point, but it's not dispositive. You mean primary challenges? Yeah, primary challenges. But a lot of these guys are very well protected. Well, it's Th- not just They're that. very well ensconced. It's that they don't give you money for your general election. That's the other problem. But go ahead. Yeah, but I think it is unlikely to imagine a world, given how partisan everything is, it's unlikely to imagine a world where the Koch funding network is turned to uh, withdraws from politics entirely or where Republican donors withdraw from politics and are willing to cede the field. Like, like, well, these guys didn't vote for Obamacare, so we're just going to back out. We're just going to give up. We're not going to play. That's not going to happen. They're going to continue to play. I mean, partisanship has become so entrenched mm-hmm. that there, there are these huge interests aligned in getting Republicans elected and mostly getting the current Republicans elected. And so I just think these guys need to do more or less what the Democrats did back in when Hillary Care failed in 93. Now, that was a huge lost after that the democrats got <laughs> the democrats got murdered but it w- the democrats weren't murdered because hillary kr failed they were murdered for a lot of different reasons and republicans can get some legislative accomplishments that their people want done they can get a tax some sort of bullshit tax bill uh with a 10-year sunset which doesn't even cut the deficit which which raises the deficit excuse me they can get that done and they should just go and get that done rather than sitting there anxiety and fretting about the the promises they they may break break so many promises just break this one who cares i think it's not a crazy idea that it's overstated how much punishment they would um, face if they didn't pass it but some pieces of data in the opposite direction if if all of your elections are basically base elections because you know, turnout's lower. Turnout's lower. The Republican base, because the president is unpopular and is likely to either remain so or become more so, uh, you're going to – Republicans are really going to be just down to their base, base, base. Like So if the base, 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 which really cares about and keeps score about this stuff and has acted to um, – to cut off their nose despite their face in some of these primary challenges that we've seen and that Republicans worked so hard to fight against in 2014, 
they're not crazy to think that they would that Republicans would stay home as out of spite for these lawmakers or anger or, or genuine, deflation or deflation. Now, on the opposite side, usually Republicans can rely on the fact that younger voters and voters of color who represent the key portions of the Democratic base don't turn out in off year elections. But if voting against Donald Trump becomes a cultural signifier, not just I want this or the, I want that, but like my identity is wrapped up in in punching President Trump in the nose, then you're going to have potentially see greater turnout from those portions of the Democratic base. So you would have a depression of one and an upside in the other. The president giving new fuel to the Democratic base each passing day, it would seem. And then, of course, we shouldn't leave aside the policy problems of the fact that if you don't do anything, the Affordable Care Act is dying as a result of neglect within the administration already. So there will be real downsides uh, in terms of coverage that are going to be bouncing around out there that could come back and and be a problem. That's not so much a political thing, but it's just a reality of if they don't do anything, the administration, both through not a, not advertising for the exchanges, for potentially changing the formulas a little bit, and not enforcing the individual mandate, is allowing or is helping the uh, exchanges struggle. And that'll in have a big policy states, impact. In some states, not in all states, right? Well, definitely we not in the qualify. states that didn't take – in states that have their own – although I think the – States where there are problems with the exchanges – Right, but if but but if the federal government helps and do the advertising, if they're not doing any advertising, any state that has an exchange is not going to have that advertising that encourages healthier people ups. to sign up. And the individual mandate is yes. exercised by the IRS. I mean, sorry, is 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 by the IRS. So that is national. Yeah. So one of the things that happened in in the president's many uh, zigs and zags this week was he his immediate response to the defeat of the bill or the the withdrawal of the bill or the was to tweet that he would they were going to kill Obamacare through neglect, which is an appalling stance to take when you sort of dig into it. Do you think they're going to do some of the things that John talked about? I mean, obviously, they're not enforcing the individual mandate, but not make the CSR payments to insurers, generally try actively to destabilize, or do you think they're not quite that um, vicious? Well, it just seems so self-harming to do that because when you're in the White House and you're the people controlling the Department of Health and Human Services and the IRS and these agencies, then you're responsible. I mean, Trump says over and over again that Obama is Obamacare is a disaster and it's going to die and the Democrats are going to take the blame for it. And I just feel like Saying it really loudly doesn't make it so. And if you're the president and a lot of people's premiums go through the roof because you're not stabilizing the system, people are going to understand that. Now, it's also interesting that they really stabilized Alaska in the last few weeks. You know, Alaska was doing this, as I understand it, they were making their own payments to insurers for people who had very high cost illnesses. And they asked the federal government for something like, what, 40 Forty million dollars to be reimbursed for what they were spending. And the Obama administration had said yes. And there was this question of whether the Trump administration was going to do it, too. And they said, indeed, we will. And maybe this was to buy off Lisa Murkowski's vote for yeah. Yeah. The legislation in a Republican so state. I shouldn't. But I also think there's something just like, are the people at HHS really going to be so um tantrum like or are they going to be the grown-ups in the room in the end if you're the one who controls this do you really let people just like what has the last six well, months H- told you about that indicated and also hhs is already by not advertising and right. and and actually has put out press releases in opposition to 
the Affordable Care Act. So I think they, they've already shown their hand. By the way, speaking of putting out press releases against interest or sort of against interest, the RNC was putting out mailers and pressuring Republican senators in a way that you usually don't see, sort of saying now is the time for for the Senate to act as if the Senate were controlled by Democrats. It was a another kind of just striking thing that happened this week. So you, you the... think that they're going to let the exchanges collapse? No, I don't know. I'm, okay. I I was just asking. I just think betting betting on decency and the grown and, up and behavior, grown up behavior, and and the government acting towards the general well being of the populace. That's not a bet I would make with this administration, just, unlike well, every other administration I've ever their, seen. Their world, these these are their constituents, right? These are red states, rural folks who are going to take the they, hit. They don't seem to think in those terms. They think su- in such political terms and for ideological everything. ideological terms, I guess. Yeah. Well, they also think, I mean, to give them their due, they think it's a bad law that should die. And so if they can do something to hasten its death and replacement, and this is the route they've been left by congressional inaction, then that's what they should do because leaving it in place in their view is a terrible thing. So it's not just, I mean, that's, it may be those point. other that's things, fair. but that's, that's fair. That's do you point. think, John, that the Democrats would take the blame? Do you think that Trump is right about that? Well, I do think one thing, which is, okay, let's say nothing happens, presidency moves on, there are more distractions and other things obviously come into play, whether those distractions have to do with Russia or they have to do with the uh, tax reform, which I think will be just as hard. Or an actual if not crisis. Harder, or an actual crisis. Manufactured one. Lots of stuff happens. Then you start seeing stories that that are about premiums increasing, and the stories themselves will just be about premiums increasing and the and the collapse of the Affordable Care Act. And Democrats will say, "But it's collapsing because they're not doing the advertising, they're not enforcing the individual mandate, they're doing everything to try and kill Obamacare." And maybe people will hear that, or they will just hear the way the story is reported, which is, you know. Uh, insurance company pulls out of this state completely, you know, and, or another, there's another state where there's nobody, nowhere you can get coverage if you're in the exchange. And you could imagine a way in which the lack of attention to the ongoing effort by Republicans to, or the inability, ongoing inability of Republicans to replace it is out of the news and people's opinions kind of slosh back to kind of a stasis point. So I think it's not uh, totally crazy to think that it would shift back in a pretty considerable way to where kind of it was for at least Republican voters. My God, I really, I just want to stop talking about I this. I know, enough, right? Ugh. Well, and what's so depressing is that we're, we're like on the very farthest edge of the field. Like we're not at the central question, which is how do you take care of, of an aging population and how do you take care of people who, I mean, the central question, is it a right in America to have health care or not? Is it, why are costs so high? Are costs going down? How what do you do? How do you, yeah. I mean, the central questions are like not even. On the table. Well, on, well, but what's weird is that, the, that we're fighting over, that the basically that the conservatives in the in the party have held the healthcare system hostage to an idea that almost nobody believes in. There's almost nobody who believes that there should be more or less a free market for healthcare and people should live with the consequences of their choices and that people should basically make choices in an individual market where they are actively making decisions uh, about their healthcare and that if you choose wrong, you're you're doomed. I don't think there is – I think there are people who will say that in theory, but the number of people who when actually having to sort of face those choices, like I'll go without – I'll take a health plan that doesn't allow me to be hospitalized or have catastrophic care. Like people don't do it. It's not something that anybody – Wants and no society in the world is structured in this way. 
uh, or no society that works in the world is structured in this way. And so the idea that the political debate in the country has been held hostage by the kind of conservatives in the Republican caucus over this idea of making it a free market is tragic to me. That's like not really where the debate should be. The debate is more or less, do we want a market where, you know, employer health care ins- insurance works? Do we want a single payer market? I mean, those are basically and how do the we only bring costs down? Budgets. How do we stop paying using so much of our social wealth well, on healthcare? I think there's more of a mixed position in the world. That's where people who even even the Affordable Care Act had market f- forces embedded in it and experimentation. Even the experimentation for letting uh, insurance companies sell across state lines, of which there was some allowed in the Affordable Care Act, was an attempt to have experiments with the market forces that might bring costs down. The difference is, is the share of market forces, the idea that the free market left to gallop on its own with a tiny little something over here to take care of the sickest. Uh, that's the thing that seems, you know, the cruise bill, which was basically allow a vestigial Obamacare plan and then let all the other insurance companies go without any mandates, you know, had a, just that central flaw that you that they weren't going to be able to cover the sickest who would be left. Well, in the that central vestigial. flaw is they're not able to cover people with pre-existing conditions or sick people, which is everybody is a person with a pre-existing condition or a sick person at some point in their well, life. And so it doesn't make any sense. Well, it may it, it only makes sense if you fund the vestigial Obamacare plan with with a trillions so and trillions of dollars. Right. But I guess my point is that it's it's not that, it, that the solution is without any element of the market. It's just that what so many Republicans want is just basically a a huge role for the free market uh, to drive down costs. And that doesn't, that's what's running into the problem. Those of you who are Slate Plus uh, members, you lucky you, you're going to get an extra segment today. We're going to talk about presidents breaking norms. We're going to look at history of norm breaking by presidents. Both Emily and John have written really great pieces in the past couple of weeks about this. And we're going to dig into it. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia and identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Also, podcast listening pals, we're not the only good podcast in the Slate and Panoply network. There are a lot of other ones, and one that I like to listen to is Dear Prudence, which is hosted by Mallory Ortberg, who's the columnist Dear Prudence. It's a weekly podcast. She gives advice and commentary about people's problems. You know, if you like to hear about other people's problems and hear a smart person, an extremely funny person, analyze them, you might want to try listening to the Dear Prudence podcast. I recommend it. Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming of the Presidency is the new bestseller from Bloomberg's Joshua Green. It's a story of Bannon, who is, to use Josh's words, a brilliant ideologue from the outer fringe of American politics whose unlikely path happened to intersect with Trump's at precisely the right moment in history. Josh, welcome to the Gabfest. Thanks. It's great to be here. Um, my first question is, who is the devil in the title? 
Um, you know, it's funny. We at Penguin, my publisher, I, I didn't come up with the title, um, but but it had that that certain kind of resonance, you know. And so we had a debate about like, well, which one is the devil, and well, should it be devil's collective or singular? Because you can kind of right, you so, could have moved the apostrophe. So we, to after right, the exactly, S. exactly, and, and we we had a serious debate about this with the copy editor. Um, so I, in the end, I think of it as a kind of a choose your own adventure book. You know, you can pick whichever guy you want to be your devil. And what's the bargain? The bargain is, you know, I, I think implicit at the heart of the Trump-Bannon relationship is, you know, on Bannon's side, this idea that he has and, and, and has long had this kind of hard right populist politics that he thought was missing from the political debate and that if you could find the right vessel for those ideas, that person could get elected president. And then the flip side of the bargain is – that president who's, who's been carried to the White House on Bannon, Bannon's ideas would in turn faithfully enact them and, you know, Bannon would see his vision for America borne out. But that doesn't really happen because neither Trump nor Bannon uh, for the most part seems to know how to function well in the White House. So I want to ask you about Bannon's relationship with Jeff Sessions, which I'm fascinated by, because the Department of Justice actually has levers you can pull to realize some of this vision. So does the Department of Homeland Security. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that it's on immigration, you know, and deporting people and causing real hardship for undocumented immigrants where the Bannon vision probably is the most realized. But DOJ plays a role in that, too. And Bannon and Sessions both kind of showed up early on in the Trump campaign and became allies. Now we know from Trump's interview with The New York Times this week that Sessions, at least in Trump's mind, is on the out. So Trump made this kind of amazing statement that uh, not only should Sessions not have recused himself from the Russia investigation, but he should have told Trump in advance because Trump would never have given him the job of attorney general if he'd known this. So. What is the current shape of the kind of Bannon-Sessions alliance? And does Bannon have Sessions' back in there? or So, so the Bannon-Sessions uh, relationship actually goes back a long time. I mean, they have, they have been in league for years and years and years because Sessions was really the only prominent member of Congress that believed in the same kind of, of, of populism that Bannon does. Bannon refers to it as – agrarian populism and sessions in the senate was kind of the avatar of that stuff that type of politics and also those of us might call it white nationalist or even others white might call it others might call it uh white, white supremacist but but the point is these these guys have been uh, sort of a little cabal for years and years and years and bannon and would breitbart was like feeding sessions exactly. well, and no, sessions was yeah right and, and sessions sessions and his his staffer stephen miller who's now a senior official in the white house would basically feed stories to breitbart which would publish them and it would spread through this kind of underworld of conservative radio, as I call it in the book. Sessions, I think, was a really pivotal guy in Trump's rise because, you know, we, we forget now early on in the primaries, Trump was winning, but nobody in Washington was giving him any respect. He had no endorsements. And Bannon worked and worked and worked to try and talk Sessions into endorsing him. Bannon had actually two years earlier, three years earlier, tried to talk Sessions into running for president. Which is such a hilarious idea, just like the it, anti-charisma. Of it is. You're right. He, 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 is, he, he has a Trump charisma is deficit. Trump a superior vessel. Trump is definitely a superior vessel. But what <laughs> Bannon thought he was doing was if you know if Sessions could run, he would talk about free trade and, and anti-immigration stuff and elevate those issues among Republicans because – 
he thought correctly that those issues would resonate. Well, Sessions passed, but once he got Trump to do it, Sessions was sort of Trump curious for a long time. He wouldn't kind of, you know, experiment with actually endorsing him, but finally Bannon talked him into it. I have the scene in the book where, you know, Sessions is sitting in his car at the airport. He said he's going to go endorse Trump at the rally and he's getting cold feet. And Bannon is back in D.C. in his flip-flops, you know, trying to talk him into doing it. This is our moment, Jeff. Whispering and in his ear. Whispering in his ear like, like you know, the devil. And, and, and finally, Sessions goes out at the rally and With puts the- on the MAGA hat and, you know – and then like the, a day later, that was right before the SEC primaries, I think what we used to call Super Tuesday, all the big southern states. And sure enough, you know, Trump knocked them down like dominoes with the exception of one or two. And Sessions and, knew he'd pick the right horse. Exactly. So what about now? Do you have a sense? I mean, maybe this is post your reporting, but I'm just curious how you think Bannon is responding to this, like all the darts that Trump is throwing at the sessions oh, he's, on the wall. A- absolutely freaking out. I mean, Bannon, Bannon um, uh, in the transition in the early days of the administration, even when there was all this chaos over the travel ban and the fact that legislation wasn't going anywhere, Bannon was convinced that the fact that Sessions was attorney general would give him enormous power to change policy, change enforcement, change enforcement, make decisions on some of these executive orders um, that wouldn't require the legislature. And so he thought that getting Sessions into that position was this this great victory that we, quote unquote, leftists in the media weren't acknowledging. Uh, so I have no doubt Bannon is absolutely terrified <laughs> that Trump is going out and stomping on a guy who is not only uh, you know a loyal endorser and a key guy early on, but is really a critical cog in the administration. Where does he fit in the firmament? Um, and how much of his, uh, that whiteboard with all those achievements that he wants to have the Trump presidency achieve in his office, how much of it is he working on on taking care of in a way that a lot of us don't see because everybody's focused on the mm. public stuff and even legislative? I mean, there's stuff having it happening at the FTC and the FCC and the FDA that's all yeah, in Bannon's hope. <laughs> you know, you can never tell with Trump's inner circle from day to day, from hour to hour, even kind of who's up and who's down. Trump is so hot and cold based on, it seems to me, what he sees on Fox News that you never really know. But overall, Bannon seems to be back in his good graces. He, he absolutely has been focused on not not just the executive orders, but what he called at CPAC, the conservative political action conference where he gave a rare public appearance, the deconstruction of the administrative administrative state. So, you know, he's working with some outside people to try and pack the federal judiciary with administrative deconstructors. They're doing a good job. Yeah, he's, he's real tight with the, the Federalist Society guys to, to try and do this. So, And that's you know, one of the most functional parts of the Trump administration. And they're really delivering for the right in a way that they promise. Yeah, it, it, it really is. And it's one that tends to kind of fly below the media radar because it's not something you can really discuss on cable news and have people still stay tuned into it. So so I, I sort of feel like the, the parts of, of Bannon's agenda, I guess Trump's agenda, that are the most successful are the ones that don't need to go through Congress and aren't necessarily high profile. Do you think that this populist, nativist, agrarian, white nationalist movement will stay coherent past Trump? Or is it, will the GOP reconfigure and fold them in in some other way? Uh, or is it does it does it get to be a movement that endures? 
I think it was a movement that was kind of there all along. I mean, it, it's sort of like, you know, it, it goes from simmer to boil. But if you go back to 2006 and 2007, when George Bush was trying to pass immigration reform, he was stopped by the grassroots conservatives in his own party. And this long predates Bannon and Trump. It, it's always been there. I think I think what Bannon and Trump did is amplify it and uh, – uh, extremify isn't a word, is it? Extreme, <laughs> extremify it. You can coin that. I'm coining, I'm coining that phrase. If, if, if Trump can make things up, so can I. I don't think that that goes away. I mean, what's, what's always been interesting to me is the fantasy game of what would happen if you took the appealing parts of Bannon and Trump's agenda and, you know, you handed them to actually competent politicians who knew what they were doing. The idea of a, a blue-collar focused economic populism, you know, there could be an element of immigration restrictionism. You know, back 10, 15 years ago, the labor left was actually very queasy about immigration because they didn't want low-wage workers coming in. I mean, Bannon has always believed wrongly, I think, that eventually he could appeal to people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren because in the Venn diagram of Bannon's populism and Sanders's populism, there is there is a teeny bit of overlap. So if you take those two two of the big things that, that Trump slash Bannon campaigned on, one was the that blue-collar populism that you're talking about, maybe not in specific policies, but in thrust, and the other is draining the swamp. Neither of those two has really happened. The swamp, in fact, has <laughs> gotten, gotten considerably more swampy yeah, if you think yeah. about in terms of lobbyists and that kind of thing. So is that a – is that a failure? Is it that the talk about draining the swamp and the notion of economic populism was kind of just the thing that gets you into office? Um, or is it something Trump's gotten distracted over here and Bannon is still, you know, he's furious all those lobbyists are in there and he's furious there hasn't been a vote on term limits. And he's furious that, you know, uh, big donors are now uh, have jobs in the administration. Yeah. No, it, it's definitely been a failure. And no, I don't think that Steve Bannon is sitting in there, you know, fulminating about the the rise of the swamp. At heart, Bannon is a propagandist. You know, he studies these fascist filmmakers from the 1930s you know his his big hero is sergey eisenstein who did battleship potemkin the soviet propagandist and lenny riefenstahl and if you watch bannon's movies which i don't recommend they're they're terrible but they they are they're and they yet are, revealing and yet you've ever but they're this sort of you know hackish homage to you know what he saw those filmmakers doing He's all about message. And, and where I do give him a lot of credit, I think, is that he he understands voters' anxieties and he's very good at kind of conjuring up an image that really does resonate with people. But conjuring up an image and messaging during a campaign is entirely different than you know legislating, than actually draining the swamp. The other problem is that neither Trump uh, nor Bannon have any kind of attention span at all. I mean, they're both completely – Addled and can't focus on anything for more than a minute or two. So sorry to if I can just follow up on that because it does seem that it, it, uh, or help me reconcile the idea that Bannon is totally without you know has that lack of focus and yet on the other hand his success is in part because he was stayed focused on this set of ideas for a long period of time in the wilderness. I think he really believes the ideas and he's able to focus on longer term things. I mean, I describe in the book all these interlocking organizations that Bannon helped set up 
the Government Accountability Institute that did the Clinton Cash Book and Breitbart and some of these interlocking organizations. I mean, he he does have a kind of a big picture vision, but minute to minute, hour to hour, sentence to sentence. I mean, if you ever you know if you've ever interviewed him, it, it's like a Roman candle. You know, he'll start in to say, saying something really interesting and then like pow, he'll break off mid sentence. True on his radio, and he's talking about something too. else. Yeah, I mean, he's 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 someone who is so excited he can barely sit still. And uh, I think Trump likes that about him, the fact that he's got a lot of energy. He, he has a high metabolism. He's not low energy. Um, but it makes it difficult to to focus on these things and, and, and really do anything. So you had the prescience to write about Bannon a couple of years ago. Why does he want to keep talking to you? Is it because you're making him important? Does he like this book because it makes him no. central? <laughs> I think the thing he liked about me was that I was genuinely interested in his idea, and I spent you know six months or whatever it was traveling around reporting, and I wrote about it not in a way that was you know, pejorative or trying to slam him on the head, just just explanatory, explaining what he was up to. Yeah, exactly. Bannon wants more than anything else in the world to be taken seriously, and and as I was told, one of the things Trump liked was the headline of the profile I wrote in Business Week, and the headline of the piece was "This man is the most dangerous political operative in America." At the time it was written, it was meant to be kind of ironic and tongue-in-cheek because he really wasn't a very famous guy. But Trump, who perhaps did not pick up on the subtleties, just liked the idea of, ooh, dangerous man in America, you know, that's my kind of guy, and, you know, put Bannon in charge of the campaign. Bannon went from kind of obscurity to infamy overnight and on some level, I think, thought that my article had played a part in that. And that at the very least, if he talked to me, that he would get a fair treatment, which he doesn't feel like he gets from a lot of people in the media. And what's his complaint about the book? (laughs) The thing Bannon objects to the most is that Bannon's name comes before Trump's name in the (laughs) subtitle of the book. So it's all about alpha dog status. Oh, all all about alpha dog. And somebody, he goes, goes like, you know, Trump's not going to read your book, but he'll see the title and the fact that he's like, not just that he has... A co-star, but like that, that like the leading man may not be Donald Trump. The is mo- not going to go well. The star of the movie might be the Steve. Is not going to. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so I'm sure he was very worried about that. But you know, so far, uh, Trump's ire has been trained more on Jeff Sessions and uh, Bob Mueller and Jim Comey, and not on Steve Bannon. So maybe, maybe he'll survive the second bout of fame. Josh Green, his book is Devil's Bargain. Steve Bannon. Donald Trump on the stormy of the presidency. But he's going to issue a new edition, which is going to be called Devil's Bargain, Donald Trump, Steve Bannon, and the stormy of the presidency. Josh, thanks for coming by. Thanks so much. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. Candace Jackson, the head of civil rights for Betsy DeVos at the Department of Education, stepped in it this week when she said to the New York Times that 90% of college sexual assault accusations, quote, fall into the category of we were both drunk, we broke up, and six months later I found myself under a Title IX investigation because she just decided that our last sleeping together was not quite right. 
Jackson apologized publicly and privately later, but her remarks. She barely apologized. She said she was sorry for being flippant. But her remarks and DeVos's meetings with people accused of sexual assault on campus have enraged many people, mostly on the left. So, Emily, just uh, back us up. What are DeVos and Jackson doing and why is it so alarming to people uh, who watched what happened with college sexual assault investigations during the Obama years? Well, let's go back to 2011 when the Obama administration. (laughs) 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 Emily, you look so young. I know. John, one day you might host Face the Nation. (laughs) Oh, no. One can only dream. Not possible. Um, And David, you're going to have a super successful startup right in your future. Um, Okay, so in 2011, the Obama administration issued the first of a couple of what are called Dear Colleague Letters, and they said to college campuses across the country, you're on notice, you need to be ready to investigate and potentially discipline students who are accused of sexual assault on campus. You can't sweep this under the rug. You can't just call the police and wash your hands of looking into what has happened. And you have to use a standard when you have these panels where you meet and try to decide if someone committed assault of preponderance of the evidence, which is like the 50% plus a feather of proof, right? As opposed to beyond reasonable doubt, which is like really, really sure our standard in criminal trials, or there's this kind of in-between idea of clear and convincing evidence. So campuses, not every single campus, but in general, since 2011, there has been a real shift at a lot of campuses to take sexual assault investigations more seriously and put more resources into them. Are you about to? I may have a question? series of questions, which is, is this, why should the federal government tell colleges that what to do on this? Well, Title it- IX says that it guarantees an equal right to education and to access to indication independent of one's sex or gender. And so the argument is that when people are facing the real threat of sexual assault, then they're not having equal access to education and that this particularly affects women and trans people. And why, I mean, I guess my biggest question is why is this a college administrative process? If there is sexual assault or an accusation of sexual assault, why in any sense is this some kind of internal administrative process. If there's a if someone is sexually assaulted in the slate office, slate doesn't create a panel to investigate the sexual assault in the slate office. You call the cops and you Well, actually, try. Title 7 means that employers have a duty to investigate um, sexual harassment, which okay. can go all the way up to sexual assault. So in fact, um, I mean, there isn't the same kind of in loco parentis, like, you know, the the campuses are like your parents when you have a company. And we're not used to thinking of rape and sexual assault as in the same category as sexual harassment, even though there are plenty of lawsuits that get brought, Title VII employee lawsuits against employers that include allegations of sexual assault. So, But, but in al- sorry, uh, to, to okay. linger on this. Okay, I understand. So I, my example was clearly bad that Slate should be having uh, not a panel, kangaroo but, trials for no, people. No, trials, <laughs> but, but there is some obligation but, for it. Go to yeah. private court but why, if court. there isn't sexual assault, as I understand it, that is a crime. That's a crime anywhere you you do it. If you do it in an office, if you do it in a, in a in a college dorm, if you do it at a frat party, that's a crime. It's so, both a crime and a tort, right? So, well, a tort, a tort is something. Also, you there are, we have courts set up to bring civil torts. Why is it that the first line here 
is colleges, which are don't are not investigated agencies, are prosecutorial. They don't have judges. They don't have any uh, that independence. Why would they be dealing with cr- criminal investigations? Was the Obama letter asking them to engage in a criminal investigation, or asking them to find out what the conditions were that were created the environment in which this could take place or not take place? I mean, the Obama administration was not asking colleges to criminally investigate because universities don't have that power. But it was asking them to look into the facts of the actual incident alleged, not just like the environment Mm -hmm. on campus and to try to get to the bottom of what happened and make some kind of judgment. And so you're asking why? Why should universities be in that role? And the argument implicit, I think, in your question is like this is a very awkward fit for schools that are not set up to have investigative police forces. And the justification the Obama administration gave in this interpretation of Title IX. So this is rooted in law. It's rooted in the same idea of guaranteeing equal access to education independent of sex and gender. And the idea is that The police are an inadequate remedy for these kinds of situations. You have students on campus who feel a lot of fear or discomfort in the wake of an assault. It takes the police. This is just the way the criminal process works. Takes months, takes longer. And that these schools should be protecting victims by, for example, giving them accommodations, like allowing them to take their classes in off campus or finish in a slower way, helping them. This is where it gets starts to get tricky. Giving no contact orders, for example, where the school will reach an agreement with an alleged assailant and a victim saying that, the alleged assailant can't go anywhere near the victim or they'll change the housing. That's like so part of this are these sort of let me finish just one more second. These remedies in the short term while this is playing out. And there has been this kind of increasing sense on the part of survivor groups that the criminal justice system, because rape and sexual assault is so difficult for the criminal justice system to handle well, that on campuses where people are in this bubble and they have to live together, you need an alternative remedy. That's wow. the argument. There's so many things that seem so weird to me about that. Number one, is there any evidence that rape and sexual assault is more prevalent among 18 to 22 year olds on college campuses than it is among 18 to 22 year olds anywhere else. No, we think that's probably lower, not so higher. So why although... are we setting up? Why are we setting up a whole new set of infrastructure around this when we're we're not? I mean, everyone who's 18 to 22 who's sexually assaulted on a non college campus, it's the cops deal with it. It's a judicial process. Why is that not good enough for? Our, our college students. I mean, you can say this is very hypocritical or privileged, but that we have this notion that college campuses are supposed to be places in which people live together comfortably and safely and that, that allegations of assault are a threat to I don't, that. I don't think that the situation that 18 to 22-year-olds who live in a small town and they're sexually assaulted by someone else who lives in that small town and they, no one's moving – like, is that radically different than that of a college? And a lot of – and I also think this is – There's know, a lot of class but, privilege going on. Yeah, and a lot of sure. people who go to college are going to big, huge universities where people are commuters or it's not – not everyone's going to a, like a tiny little enclosed walled garden. Another aspect of this is an extremely successful survivor movement on college campuses that made their issues front and center, got the attention of the Department of Education, had a sympathetic ear there during the Obama administration and made this issue really prominent and take off and and made a lot of parents feel like they wanted to be sending their kids to school in places that were handling this sensitively. And I, I will say, having reported on this, I think like 10 or 12 or more years ago at Yale, 
that schools were not handling, they were leaving victims kind of in the lurch, feeling unsupported, feeling like, you know, someone who had hurt them was just walking around with feeling completely unvindicated and uncared for. And it wasn't like the people, the college administrators and faculty, you know, disciplinary panel members were like terrible people. It just they just weren't really doing anything. And so if you think that was a problem, this was a solution. Having talked to professors at two different universities, one of them your university, about this and the processes. The processes that have been described to me when I talk to them about sort of how these things unfold in, in the real administrative proceedings at the university sound terrible. Why? Sound, what sounds terrible the, to you? The, it's like the rules about sort of evidence, about cross-examination, about appeal are all like bad slash opaque. Some that, schools that are doing the, better jobs that, than that others. The, the, the professors and administrators who are kind of dragooned into the role of judges or deciders are uncomfortable with it and don't really know what to make of it and feel enormous political pressure to make decisions in a particular direction. I don't think that's fair necessarily. Well, Look, it's very I don't hard know that to it's generalize. Fair, but like, the, like in, in the specific conversations I've had about this, it sure sounded like that to me. Look, there are bad stories sort of – on all sides. And I totally agree with you about opaque. Um, one of the, to me, weaknesses of the system is that it's all happening behind closed doors. Now, for privacy reasons there and confidentiality reasons and the fact there are students involved, there are good reasons for some of that. But we've emerged with a very murky sense of even just how these processes work. So, however, you know, I think when you have essentially when you're asking institutions to take on a new or a like very much ramped up role, you're going to have some like aches and pains along the way. It's not going to they're not going to figure it out all at once. And I think that some schools actually have arrived at, you know, fairly good processes. But you're it's you're never going to have everyone satisfied with this because some of the assault allegations and situations that are being um, kind of interrogated by the society and by these schools are very tricky. And people come to really different conclusions about whether they think these are encounters deserving of real punishment or not. Isn't there a possible anti-elitist way of looking at this, which is that your your protected, cosseted, super wealthy colleges are kind of alive and awake to this idea perhaps more than sort of sort of your bigger colleges with with uh, less money and that you could make a case for a federal role to help create a better environment at schools where it's not all super high elites. The second thing, though, is what's the end state they're going for, Emily? If this is a clunky stumbling towards a proper process, what is the end state? Is it this investigative thing or is it just creating a better environment for learning where you don't have assaults or the threats of assaults? Well, for sure you want the latter. I mean, you want prevention. So one thing that has come about at least at the same time as more enforcement has been more attention to prevention, to teaching students about bystander intervention, to educating young men mostly about their role, um, hopefully to getting students to think about the role of alcohol use in all of this, which I think gets underplayed in this discussion in a way that is unfortunate because alcohol does play a role. Not that not I don't mean that in a victim blaming sense. I just mean that, you know, sometimes people 
commit sexual assault in the process of being really drunk. Anyway, it's a good thing, I think, that these issues have surfaced. And I definitely feel like my kids um, who are teenagers are like 200 percent more aware of this than I mean, they just it's on their radar. They're boys um, and they are being told to think about this in high school in a way that I actually think is really good and helpful. So there's that side of it. You know, are they ever going to get the investigations exactly right in a way that isn't just like for the most elite schools but can be replicated? I'm, I don't think the jury's out on that. I don't think we know. But people are learning things along the way. And some of the like most boneheaded problems in the beginning where you have people on these disciplinary panels who just seem like they just don't know anything, um, that kind of stuff can start to change. I you're deeply skeptical. Well, I, it's not that I'm skeptical. I just feel like this is an area where where the left has played fast and loose with facts. I, there's a number circulating around one in five. Or sometimes one in four. Sometimes one in four students is a victim of sexual assault, which I think is a I, – I didn't – haven't dug into it, but it looks like based on my kind of cursory reading, it looks super iffy. Other studies have said the numbers are as low as one in 16. Right. Well, it says this is a problem in part of definition and also who responds to these surveys. And yeah, I mean, I, yes. Yeah. And also, I think the just the kind of overwrought, hypersensitive focus on victimhood, which in many cases is real victimhood. And there's no, I mean, to be sexually assaulted and raped is like, you know, one of the most profound forms of victimization one can endure. It just, I feel like there's so many other problems with American higher education and that this is the one that people have that that has enraged people about Betsy DeVos and has captured the imagination of so many people. I mean, when you when you think about all the other things that they could be doing or are doing, this seems to me just so small. And so she said 90 percent and she but, you know, she's right that actually. A lot of sexual assault allegations are about people being drunk and losing control of themselves. It's not just that flippant comment, though. It's also that they're thinking of rescinding this dear colleague letter. And that would send a message to schools that all of this um, activity of the last several years is – do you think it, it sends a message to schools that, okay, now it's open season for sexual assault at colleges? Do you honestly think, given the cultural climate of our time, that people are going to be like, okay, boys, go ahead. Sexual assault's okay now. That's I, not going to happen. No, no, no one's going to – sorry. That's, no. no, well, she's – I think she's unlikely to embrace that kind of a ridiculous view. Yes, that seems <laughs> a little out there. But I do think that a lot of schools would heave a sigh of relief and go back to essentially doing nothing and that – they would be very happy to be off the hook for this difficult task that they've been put on. And I don't feel ready to let them off the hook. I'm not saying I would keep every jot and tittle of the current system in place, but I think that abandoning it entirely would be taking a big step step backward. And you can talk about how to improve things without going, you know, that far. And the other thing that Candace Jackson did was to bring men's rights groups in for a meeting at the Department of Education that have been utterly misogynist. I mean, groups that allege that women make up rape and sexual assault all the time, which there is evidence exactly in the opposite opposite direction for that. Groups that blame women for domestic violence. I mean, we're talking about some really misogynist stuff here. Now, like they can have meetings with whoever they want. And I understand why there are groups of families of men who've been accused of sexual assault on campus who feel very ill-used and that 
like you can have a completely reasonable debate, I think, about the standard of proof. I myself am skeptical about the preponderance of the evidence standard being the right one. But that's different from moving into like this fringe world of, you know, women make up rape stories all the time. I mean, that's when you start to see just this very unattractive edge of this administration, the same, sorry, now I'm associating, but, you know, we had this week, this the first hearing of the vice president's election commission, in which, like, all kinds of kooky voter fraud allegations get thrown around. It's like, in, there, things just go off the well, deep end. But Emily, fast. I want to I just push back on that. I do not believe that most rape allegations, whether college or elsewhere, are made up. I'm sure it is massively underreported. However, the fact that the two most profound, salacious, important, publicly attended to rape allegations of the past decade, UVA UVA and Duke, Duke, were both made up, is a big problem for this movement, a huge problem and one that – that you can't just wish away and say, oh, it's this is illusory. This wasn't just like two of 50. These were the two most prominent ones that were most public, most discussed, and they were both manufactured. But that could be a media thing more than a – Exactly. Well, it could Whose be, but then – Okay, but – Who's uh, the, the, but if if then then get a bunch of stories about true rape. What if people don't care about occurred that 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 people are there that are people a ton are, of stories about true assaults that really happened. I mean, the reason that the Duke case blew up had to do with the district attorney at the time, who you know did all kinds of bad things, including hiding evidence and was disbarred as he should have been. The reason the UVA story was wrong in the way it was had to do with the you know reporter who. Didn't check it correctly and then Rolling Stone. Well, because people not... because it's a narrative people want to believe. Well, right, but that doesn't mean that the real problem of sexual assault is discredited by the fact that like the media went for, especially in the UVA case, this very sensationalized story because they thought they were feeding right. And hopefully, we learn from that. And the media has. I don't. I'm not saying this 100 percent true, but I think in general people are trying to check these stories more because they don't want to get burned in that way. And is it sure? Are we sure that it's a narrative that people want to believe that sexual assault is happening? Isn't there a pretty strong counter narrative that boys will be boys and oh, they were drunk and oh, it was just some regret and not really a real thing? Isn't that the kind well, of more both, powerful? Both are they're there. Both, both are there. there. Yeah. yeah. So at least it's both. Right. I think that's important, though, John, like never underestimate this powerful undercurrent of wanting to push this back under the rug. It is very uncomfortable to think about. And men especially are being asked to change their behavior in ways they don't want to do. So, you know, we're not we're hardly finished with that process. And we've like come out the other side of it. And now everyone is behaving in a gentlemanly manner at every frat party. No, they're not. If you want to understand what is happening in the United States right now, you really need to understand what's happening with the courts, the law, and the Supreme Court. The battle between democracy and whatever this cage match is that we're witnessing, it's going to be won and lost at the ballot box, but it's also going to be won and lost in the courtrooms. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I host Slate's legal podcast, Amicus, and we are doubling our output bringing you weekly episodes from here on in, because how else can we keep an eye on the many trials of Donald Trump, the conservative legal movement's assaults on our rights, the Supreme Court's latest slate of environmental gutting, gun safety, eviscerating cases on the docket. So follow Amicus wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes dropping every Saturday morning. 
let's go to cocktail chatter when you're having a non-alcoholic beverage. What will you be chattering about, Mr. Dickerson? Well, so first of all, today is the anniversary on July 20th, 1969, that uh, Apollo 11 uh, landed on the moon. So that's kind of cool. But but um, I'm here to talk about Apollo 8. Um, Jeffrey Kluger has a new book out about Apollo 8, which is which I didn't know anything about. And it's a fascinating story of essentially in 1967, the previous Apollo mission fails spectacularly. Three astronauts are killed on the launch pad. And there's every reason in 1968 to pull back if the next Apollo mission launches somebody into orbit. Apollo 8 is the first mission that went to the moon. They didn't land. They orbited and came back. If they screwed that up, you'd have two failures in a row. In 1968, you had the two assassinations, you had the riots in the cities, you had the Vietnam War. And so there was every reason to not uh, do something risky and adventurous. And also, if it had failed, you would have probably had a capsule just out floating in space if it hadn't blown up, you know, if they launched into orbit and then couldn't come back. And instead of pulling back, the uh, Apollo astronauts and NASA scientists said, we're going to go for it and just like totally committed themselves to this Apollo 8 mission, uh, sped up the timeline, took all kinds of educated and smart risks. And it's just a, it's an amazing story of amazing technological bravery, regular old bravery, and just sort of, you know, dreaming big at a time when there was every reason not to. It's a great story and a great read. And also another interesting read just that I was reminded of is that George Bush on the 20th anniversary of the Apollo 11 landing gave a speech about these kinds of issues, Herbert George Herbert Walker Bush. <laughs> and and it's a really good speech, like of the kind you haven't heard Certainly in, in this administration, but it was just a kind of nod to America's sense of entrepreneurial adventurousness. And also, interestingly, in the speeches, he mentions where his various kids were at the time of the uh, landing. <laughs> Doesn't mention George W. <laughs> it's just kind of funny since he went on to be president. Emily, what's your chatter? There is an interesting op-ed in the Washington Post this week by Joel Clement. It's called, I'm a scientist. I'm blowing the whistle on the Trump administration. Clement was a director of the Office of Policy Analysis at the Interior Department until last week. He um, has become a whistleblower. He was reassigned from his job, which had to do with trying to protect Native communities in Alaska from the effects of climate change. And essentially, he was reassigned to some accounting job as a way of trying to, he thinks, silence him. It's a good piece. It gets at, you know, the issues that he cared about. And also, it's just a sign of what I've been sort of waiting for. And there have been some other instances, which is these kind of loud resignations where people are leaving the federal government, but in a noisy way that calls attention to the real problems they're seeing in these departments. Ryan Zinke, the Secretary of Interior, testified before Congress that actually they're going to use reassignments in order to try to eliminate people and essentially stifle dissent. And so what we're seeing here is pushback from the bureaucracy of one of the only checks we have, given that we have one-party government right now. Um, and Walter Schaub, who is the head of the Office of Government Ethics, also resigned, what, last week or the week before. Same kind of thing, going out with the bang, explaining what he saw going wrong. And it's just going to be really important to look for these markers because they're one of our most important windows into how the administration is actually working in Washington. All right. I have a personal chatter today. It is the 20th anniversary 
of my marriage today. Of my congratulations, wedding. Donna Rosen. Just it's Apollo Apollo uh, Apollo Eleven anniversary too. So on July 20th, 1997, Hannah Rosen and I uh, got married in Cabot, Vermont. And Hannah remains, in my humble opinion, as fun and interesting and beautiful and brilliant and lovable as she was when we met in 1993 or when we got married. Or, as lovely as the moon. Uh, oh, I was going to say, over, <laughs> over the moon, really. That's yes, a better joke. over the moon. We would, I would have gone to the moon for her. I'm very pro- the effects Hannah of Rosen. I'm pro Hannah Rosen, <laughs> but not not everyone is married. Not everyone wants to be, and not everybody should be married. And not all marriages are particularly happy. And even the happiest marriages, I would hazard, I I imagine, even this is true of the Dickerson and Baslan marriages, are filled with moments and days, and perhaps even longer of anger and disappointment and irritation. I certainly have never been angrier with anyone than I've been angry at Hannah, and I bet she would say the same thing about me. But when I look back over the span of my life and think about everything that I've done and everything that I've spent my time doing and everything that's contributed to my own happiness and satisfaction and confidence and any other pot of positive measurement, that marriage to Hana dwarfs by orders of magnitude every other decision that I've ever made. Nothing else is on the pie chart as far as I'm concerned. Now, there's only one Hannah Rosen to go around, and I've got her, but that's okay, because everyone else's Hannah Rosen is not my Hannah Rosen. And the point of this chatter, which I'm sure is irritating to all, uh, to many of you, is just an exhortation to you if you are a person who is thinking about marriage as being part of your life, and you think you're the marrying sort. You should understand that it like really, really matters. Like You should find somebody who makes you better and happier and a bigger person and someone who you make better and happier and a bigger person and give attention and thought to this because it matters a lot more than the career you choose or the place you live or the amount of money you earn. So happy anniversary, Hannah. I hope we have 50 more. That seems like 50 seems like a good number more. That would be good. And for those of us who are friends of both of you, thanks to both of you for making you the people you are. Well... That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Leave us a rating at Apple Podcasts. It really helps us. We got 32 new ratings from you guys last, reviews and ratings, I should say, last week, uh, which is great. It, it tells Apple that you love this podcast and people should listen to it. And it brings it to the attention of more people. So we would really appreciate it if you leave us a rating at Apple Podcasts. For Emily Bazelon, who is now heading off northward, sadly. But I'll try and come back. And John Dickerson, uh, who's remaining stolidly, <laughs> firmly stuck in the, in the same swamp. damn place. <laughs> I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.